Hello, my name is Christopher Greenwood. I'm a, nowadays a judge of the International Court of Justice, but for 30 years before going to the court, I was a professor of international law at universities in the United Kingdom. I'm going to talk today about state jurisdiction. Now by that, what we mean is the exercise by a state of its sovereign power over individuals or corporations or other entities. Now we use that term most often in connection with the exercise of power by the courts of a state. Now that could be a criminal court trying a defendant for, for example, murder or theft or treason. Or it could be by a civil court um, hearing a case for tort or delict, uh, a case on breach of contract or a family law case such as a divorce. In all of these, the state's courts are exercising the sovereignty, the jurisdiction of that state. Now, we won't speak any further about civil courts because the question of how civil courts in different countries reconcile their competing jurisdictions is a matter that's dealt with by private international law. My focus today is going to be mainly on the activities of criminal courts. I'm only going to talk about civil courts in one area, and that is where a civil court imposes a penalty, for example, a substantial amount of punitive damages, or it applies a remedy such as multiple damages. Because when it does that, it's exercising a jurisdiction that is perhaps more akin to criminal law than to civil law. But although the main focus will be on courts, it's important to remember that the exercise of jurisdiction involves other organs of the state as well. The legislature, the parliament of a state, exercises what is known as prescriptive jurisdiction when it adopts legislation that provides that under the law of that state, a particular course of conduct is criminal. In addition, the executive of the state will exercise jurisdiction when it directs its police force to arrest somebody uh, or its bailiffs to seize their property. And we will have to say a little bit about both legislative, prescriptive jurisdiction, and also about the exercise of executive, or as it's sometimes called, enforcement jurisdiction, by the executive branch. Now the starting point is that any state is clearly entitled to apply its criminal law to persons within its own territory. So, for example, if somebody who is a national of the United Kingdom commits a driving offence in the Netherlands, a subject which I'm very careful about just at the moment, that person is subject to the criminal jurisdiction of the Dutch courts and the Dutch legal system. And that much is clearly established. There's no difficulty about it. There are, as we will see in a later lecture, one or two exceptions. For example, a diplomat enjoys diplomatic immunity and although, therefore, that diplomat is subject to the law, the law cannot be enforced against them most of the time. But the basic rule that a state has jurisdiction over everything that happens on its own territory is clear. The problem is that in this day and age, a purely territorial approach to crime isn't sufficient. A large amount of crime is transnational in character. You may, for example, have somebody in New York who in a telephone conversation or sending an email to a colleague in Geneva arranges a fraud which will take effect on a victim in Berlin. Now, one of the three states in question, at least, is going to have to exercise jurisdiction there, 
and in doing so it's going to be dealing with activities in more than one country. In addition to that, there are certain types of conduct which, although they may be located entirely within the territory of one state, for example, acts of torture, are nevertheless acts which are such serious violations of international law that international law calls on all states to exercise jurisdiction over them. We'll say a little bit more about that later in the lecture. But it's in these cases where problems can arise, where you have more than one state involved, because here you will have the authorities in state A deciding that something that has happened in state B or happened in part in state B is illegal. And they may come to that decision even though state B's laws, the law of the state where the event took place, take a different view. So what you have here is a competition, if you like, between the sovereign powers of different states. And the question is how one balances those competing sovereignties. Now, again, it's clear enough that the basic elements of jurisdiction are determined by the national law of the state concerned. The courts of a state can only prosecute somebody for an offence if the law of that state permits them to do so. They are national authorities. They therefore derive their powers from national law. But national law doesn't have the last word in these matters because as soon as you get the sovereignty of more than one state being involved, international law has to hold the ring, as it were. It has to find a way of reconciling those competing claims to sovereignty. And it does that by placing limits on the exercise of sovereign power by states. And the main theme of this lecture is going to be what are those limits? How far do they restrict a state in deciding that conduct outside its territory is to be treated as criminal? Now, the first limit is absolutely clear, and it's summed up by the Permanent Court of International Justice in one of its most famous decisions, the decision in the Lotus case between France and Turkey. In the course of that judgment, and I'll say a little bit more about the facts of the case in a few minutes, in the course of that judgment, the Permanent Court said this, the first and foremost restriction imposed by international law upon a state is that failing the existence of a permissive rule to the contrary, it may not exercise its power in any form in the territory of another state. So the first and foremost restriction in international law is that one state may not exercise its power in the territory of another state. And that follows on from the basic notion of what territorial sovereignty is. You may remember from the lecture on that subject that in the island of Palmer's arbitration, uh, Judge Huber, the arbitrator, said that sovereignty in relation to any part of the globe is the exclusive right to exercise the power of sovereignty within that territory. The exclusive right. Now, because of that, the Permanent Court of International Justice was plainly correct when it said that no state is entitled to exercise its power actually in the territory of another. An illustration of that is provided by a 19th century dispute, a case that never went to court, but is nevertheless rather interesting. A man called Lawler, a British national, had been arrested in Gibraltar by the British authorities there 
and charged with various serious offences. He managed to break free from his captors and he ran away from them. He was pursued by two prison officers and rearrested. But in those days, the border between Spain and the British colony of Gibraltar was not formally marked out. And after he had been rearrested, it became clear that he had reached the Spanish side of the border by the time he was recaptured. So the British authorities had arrested him on Spanish territory without the consent of the government of Spain. And I should say that for the purposes of this case study, we have to assume that Gibraltar is British territory throughout. That was the assumption on which the body that gave the opinion in this case was relying. Now, the British government asked the Attorney General of England for an advice on what they should do, what was the legal position. And the Attorney General advised that the arrest of Lawler on Spanish territory was clearly illegal. It was a violation of Spain's territorial sovereignty. And very interestingly, he went on to say, and the only appropriate remedy is restitution. You have to restore Lawler to Spain. You have to take him back and put him down in Spanish territory. You cannot exercise British jurisdiction over him in Gibraltar. Now, keep in mind that, of course, Lawler himself was British. The crimes of which he was accused had taken place on territory which the British authorities clearly regarded as British territory at the time. So there's no question at all, as a matter of international law, the British courts would have had jurisdiction to try him. But even though Britain had jurisdiction over the original crime, it was not entitled to exercise that jurisdiction on Spanish territory. That's the, the basis of the principle laid down by the permanent court in its Lotus judgment. Now, of course, a state is always free, if it wants to do so, to agree to another state exercising jurisdiction on its territory. And although it's not often noticed, states do this all the time. Many states are parties to agreements called status of forces agreements, under which they allow foreign armed forces to be stationed on their territory. Or to agreements with the United Nations to allow United Nations contingents to enter their territory. And it's a common feature of those SOFAs, as they're called, that they allow the, the state sending troops onto the territory to exercise criminal jurisdiction over those troops while they're there. So, for example, if a United States serviceman on a base in the United Kingdom commits an offence, he or she may be arrested by United States troops and brought before a United States court-martial. There's no violation of the Lotus Principle because the United Kingdom has agreed to it. Or you might get an agreement that is simply a one-off. A very striking example of that in a case I was involved in before I became a judge is that once Libya and the United Kingdom had reached an agreement about trying the defendants accused of the Lockerbie bombing, they did that by holding a trial under Scottish law in front of Scottish judges but in the Netherlands, at a place called Camp Zeist. And the Dutch government had to agree, by treaty with the United Kingdom, to allow the United Kingdom to establish the court in Camp Zeist. Otherwise, Britain would have been in breach of the Lotus Principle. The agreement can, in fact, even be one that is made by, is given, I should say, by a very low-ranking official on the spot.
A 1930s case is a good illustration of that. Um, and British, I say a British national, an Indian called Mr. Savakar, who was at the time, of course, a subject of the British Empire, managed to escape from custody on a British ship that was moored in the harbour of Marseille. This was at a time when India was still ruled by the United Kingdom. He managed to escape from the ship, ran down the quayside, pursued by two British policemen who had been escorting him on board the vessel, and he ran straight into the arms of a French gendarme, who seized him, turned him round, gave him to the British police, who promptly marched him back onto the ship and back into custody. France later brought proceedings against Britain for violating French sovereignty by, conduct, by carrying out an arrest on the quayside at Marseille. But the arbitrator held that the French authorities on the spot, the gendarmes, had consented to what the British authorities had done, and therefore there was no violation of sovereignty. Now there's an interesting question about what happens when a state does violate this lotus principle, but succeeds in bringing the defendant back into its own territory as a result. It's noticeable that that, of course, is what happened in Lawler, and the Attorney General's advice was the appropriate remedy for the breach of Spanish law, so of Spanish sovereignty, I should say, was to restore Mr. Lawler to Spain. But courts haven't always taken that view. Uh, a very striking example is the case of Adolf Eichmann, one of the prominent Nazi war criminals from the Second World War. Eichmann escaped at the end of the Second World War and lived under an assumed name in Argentina for many years. In the early 1960s, he was snatched from Argentina by a group of Israelis and transported to Israel to stand trial. Now, Israel accepted that it had violated Argentina's sovereignty and it made a formal apology to Argentina, which decided not to press the matter any further. But Eichmann raised the matter at his trial in Jerusalem when he said, my arrest was illegal, therefore you, the Israeli courts, have no jurisdiction over me. And the Israeli court rejected that argument. One of the reasons for rejecting it was that the violation had been a violation of the rights of Argentina to territorial sovereignty, not a violation of the rights of Eichmann. Now, even so, that still raises the question of whether the appropriate remedy was restitution, the view that the Attorney General of England had taken in the, Adolf, uh, in the Lawler case. But the Israeli courts said, no, that wasn't the case here. And one of the reasons that would support that is that Argentina had accepted an apology, and that was sufficient satisfaction on the facts of that case. But there have been other cases, for example, a case about somebody abducted from Mexico by American Drug Enforcement Agency officials, a case called United States and Alvarez Machine, in which courts have held that their power to try someone is not affected by the fact that the rights of another state have been violated, even though that other state is still insisting on re redress and hasn't yet received it. But there's also another question that you'd need to ask today, I think, and that is, even on the facts of Eichmann, would that ruling still be good in the 21st century? Would we see today the arrest of somebody like Eichmann or the arrest of Lawler as being purely a violation of the territorial sovereignty of the state where the arrest took place? 
Or would we also say it raised questions about violation of the human rights of the individual concerned? There's also, of course, in Eichmann's case, though not in the other cases we've looked at, the further question of whether the nature of the crimes with which Eichmann was charged was so serious and so directly concerned with violations of international law that that would override any normal principle about restitution. It's obviously a case in a different category from Lawler, for example. Let me turn from that to jurisdiction by the courts. And with, we're moving here from a case of arresting somebody in a foreign country to the very different case where he is arrested in the state that wants to try him, but in connection with conduct that took place outside the territory of that state, at least in part. Now, it's not at all clear quite how international law approaches this. The Lotus is a good example of the uncertainty. The Lotus is a case in which the officer, an officer on board a French vessel, the SS Lotus, was arguably negligent, and as a result, his ship collided with a Turkish vessel, the Bozkurt. The Bozkurt sank and several people on board had died. The Lotus then put into port in Turkey for repairs and the Turkish authorities arrested Lieutenant Dimon, the officer of the watch, and charged him with manslaughter under a provision of the Turkish criminal code that permitted Turkish courts to try somebody for offences against Turkish nationals anywhere in the world. France argued that there was a principle of international law that prohibited a state from exercising jurisdiction over crimes committed by foreigners on board foreign ships, a principle that the flag state of the ship had exclusive jurisdiction. The court rejected that, but it was much less clear about what it accepted as the basis for jurisdiction. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Interestingly, in the course of giving judgment, the court in the Lotus case said, in principle, States are free in international law to do whatever they like unless there is a rule of international law that prohibits them from doing so. That very liberal approach, if one likes, laissez-faire approach, has been very heavily criticised by many writers on international law. Now, it's useful in that case to look at what states actually do. When do they actually exercise jurisdiction over crimes committed in part outside their own territory? Now here we're helped by something called the Harvard Research on International Law, con conducted by the Harvard Law School in the 1930s. The Harvard Research identifies five grounds on which states exercise jurisdiction. Very important to keep in mind, it's saying these are the five grounds on which states do exercise jurisdiction. It's not suggesting that these are the only five grounds on which they may exercise jurisdiction. Still less is it suggesting that they may always exercise jurisdiction on any one of those five grounds. Now the first is the easy one, territorial jurisdiction, which is still very much the focus for common law, English-speaking countries. They tend to exercise extraterritorial jurisdiction only very sparingly. There's no difficulty with the basic principle that a state has jurisdiction over crimes committed on its territory. The problem is determining in one or two cases where a crime actually took place. 
For example, to take two English cases, in the first one, the defendant posted a letter containing a blackmail demand. The letter was posted in England, but to an addressee in Germany. So the blackmail was actually going to take effect in Germany. Now, the crime of blackmail in English law is a crime of demanding money with menaces. But the demand and the menaces were going to be made in Germany. On the other hand, the sequence of actions was put in train in the United Kingdom. And the blackmailer wasn't going to have to do anything in Germany himself. He was never going to visit Germany. The English courts decided that there was an offence triable in England. And that, I think, is clearly right. It's sometimes called the subjective territorial principle, that the state where the crime starts has jurisdiction, even though it finishes somewhere else. And then there's the other side of the coin, the objective territorial principle, in a case where the offence begins in one state but finishes in another, the state where it culminates has jurisdiction. Now, the obvious example of that is if I stand on one side of an international border with a high-powered rifle and I shoot at someone on the other side. If I kill that person, the death takes place in one state, but I pulled the trigger in another. Under the objective territorial principle, the state where the death takes place would have jurisdiction. Nowadays, of course, in a world of terrorism, it may be that I was far further away than just standing on the other side of the border. I might, for example, have put a bomb on board an aircraft in a completely different continent in order to effect these deaths in the territory of the forum state. But it would still have jurisdiction under the objective territorial principle. I'll come back in a little while to the question of what's sometimes called the effects doctrine, which is a more complicated variant on objective territoriality. The second principle on which states exercise jurisdiction is the nationality of the defendant. And this has historically been more important in civil law countries, in the French-speaking and Spanish-speaking worlds, for example. Now again, it's clear enough on its face. A state always has certain sovereign rights over its own citizens, even if those citizens are abroad. And therefore, it's generally accepted that it can prescribe their conduct when they are abroad. And even common law countries, which very rarely do this, have some exceptions. For example, the United Kingdom has for a long time made it a criminal offence for a British national to go through a bigamous marriage in another country even if it is in a country where the marriage would not be regarded as bigamous or where bigamy is not illegal in any event. And the justification given for that is that your connection with the state of your own nationality is such that it is entitled to tell you how many husbands or wives you may take, even if, as you move around the world. But there have to be some limits on the principle of jurisdiction on the basis of nationality. I am British. The British, for historical reasons, drive on the left-hand side of the road, unlike a large part of the world which drives on the right. Britain may well be entitled to tell me I may not conduct a bigamous marriage in the Netherlands, but if it said I was committing a crime if I drove on the right-hand side of the road in the Netherlands, either I would have to break that law or I would cause chaos and mayhem whenever I got behind the wheel of a car while I was here in The Hague. So clearly there are some laws which it is only appropriate for the territorial state to enforce. There are others, like the law on bigamy, where everybody would accept that the state of nationality has a, a legitimate interest. But then there are others that fall in between. 
Suppose that one state, we'll call it state A, has very strict narcotics legislation. It's a criminal offence to smoke cannabis. And it's a criminal offence for a, a national state A to smoke cannabis anywhere. In state B, on the other hand, cannabis has been decriminalised and smoking it is lawful. Is it legitimate for state A to say that its nationals commit an offence if they smoke cannabis, even when they're in state B? Probably so, because state B tolerates that conduct. But it would, of course, be very different if what we were talking about was not something like smoking cannabis, but something which state B's laws actually regarded as a right, such as the right of freedom of expression in the press. That gives rise to a much more difficult array of questions. Then the third heading of jurisdiction, the third ground on which states do in practice exercise jurisdiction, is what's known as the protective principle. The protective principle is that a state is entitled to exercise jurisdiction even over the conduct of foreigners, even outside its territory, if that conduct poses a direct threat to the state, to the security and survival of the state. So terrorists plotting a bomb outrage in another country would probably be covered by that principle. Another interesting classical example is that it's been applied to people who counterfeit the currency of a state by printing vast quantities of counterfeit notes in another country in order to destabilize the country's economy. And within those fairly narrow limits, the protective principle would seem to be fine. The difficulty is when it is applied outside that context. A particularly repellent example is that in 1938, a German court during the Nazi period convicted a Czechoslovak Jewish man of having sexual relations with a German woman in Czechoslovakia and thereby threatening the racial purity of the Aryan race. Now today, we would have no tolerance for a ruling of that kind at all. But even at the time, it stands out as an outrageous abuse of the protective principle. Another example of an area which can be very difficult indeed is if a state has legislation which prohibits insulting the state or insulting the head of state and seeks to apply those laws to articles written in newspapers by foreign nationals in foreign countries which don't have legislation of that kind. Then you have what's sometimes called the passive personality principle where a state asserts jurisdiction not because of the nationality of the defendant, but because of the nationality of the victim of the crime. That is the basis on which Turkey claimed jurisdiction in the Lotus. Though interestingly, the, Internet, the permanent court did not endorse that. While it didn't, it didn't directly say that Turkey was wrong, the basis on which it justified Turkey's actions were that the Turkish ship had to be treated as an extension of Turkish territory the crime had been completed on Turkish territory, and therefore it came within the objective territorial principle. Now, passive personality jurisdiction was once very controversial. English-speaking countries in particular were very strongly opposed to it. France, at the time of the Lotus case, was strongly opposed. But the rise of terrorism and other um, threats to, to uh, people's security and safety has tended to weaken any criticism of the passive personality principle, and it is now relied on quite extensively, at least in cases where somebody is singled out as the victim precisely because of their nationality. And you find it, the, the principle referred to without criticism 
by a number of judges in an international court case seven years ago, the arrest warrant case uh, between uh, Congo and Belgium in 2002. And lastly, you have the universality principle, that there are some crimes which are crimes which international law provides all states can try, no matter where they take place. The classic example of that would be war crimes or genocide, crimes against humanity. But it's important here to notice a distinction between cases where universal jurisdiction is permitted by international law and cases where it's actually required. There are a number of, of crimes where the crime is such that international law will accept the exercise of jurisdiction by any state, but it doesn't require it. There are others, for example, the crime of torture. If a state is a party to the torture convention, universal jurisdiction is mandatory. The same as the case with grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions of 1949 or the first additional protocol of 1977. The exact boundary between which universal crimes fall within the mandatory category and which within the permissive category is particularly controversial at the moment. Now, one of the difficulties with all of these principles of extraterritorial jurisdiction is because you have more than one state involved, you have to come to some kind of balance between the interests of those countries, taking account, for example, of the principle of the equality of states the principle of non-intervention by one state in the internal affairs of another. If you take, for example, the, the driving case I, I gave you as an illustration, it would clearly be unwarranted interference in the internal affairs of the Netherlands for the British Parliament to start saying which side of the road in the Netherlands people should drive on, even if it only asserts that in respect of British drivers. The idea of British drivers driving on the left in one country while everybody else drives on the right is itself um, too dangerous to contemplate. Or if you take the case of the application of the protective principle by the Nazi court in the sexual relations case that I mentioned, Czechoslovakia surely has the primary interest and the primary right in determining who was allowed to have relationships with whom on its territory. And that would override any interest which Germany might have had, even if that interest had not been racially based as it was in this case. But quite how you strike that balance is very difficult, and it's illustrated by the controversy about the application of what's known as the effects doctrine. Now, the effects doctrine has been relied on on a number of occasions by the courts in the United States in antitrust cases, and this is the one area of civil law I'm going to mention because in these antitrust cases, although the, the cases take place in civil courts, the result of a successful action has usually been multiple damages, treble damages, or an award of punitive damages of some kind. So they have a quasi-criminal uh, character. Now, when the US courts first looked at this issue in 100 years ago in a case called American Banana and United Fruit, they took a very conservative view. The US Supreme Court said this, the general and almost universal rule is that the character of an act as lawful or unlawful must be determined wholly by the law of the country where the act is done. That makes perfectly good sense. Whether something is legal or illegal depends on the law of the place where that act occurs. The trouble is, as we've seen with some of the terrorist cases, a state may not have an interest in criminalizing 
conduct which is only going to take effect elsewhere. So by itself, that principle probably isn't sufficient. And less than 40 years later, the US Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, that's the New York Circuit, uh, took a different view in a case called United States and Alcoa. The court there said, it is settled law that any state may impose liabilities, even upon persons not within its allegiance, in other words, foreigners, for conduct outside its borders that has consequences within its borders which the state reprehends. Now that's much more far-reaching than the traditional objective territorial principle because here we are talking not about physical effects, I fire a bullet across a border or I put a bomb in a vehicle which explodes when it crosses a border. We're talking instead about something like economic consequences. Two of us in a foreign state rig the price of a particular commodity as a result of which that price goes up within the territory of the United States. And what the Court of Appeals in Alcoa appeared to be doing is saying even indirect, unintended, non-physical consequences may be sufficient to bring you within the jurisdiction of a state. That's what they said. But the actual facts of the case don't really go quite that far because the defendant company, Alcoa, though it was a Canadian company, was in fact owned and to a large extent operated from the United States. So you could say there that the, the bark of the case is worse than its bite, that the actual decision is not as far-reaching as some of the comments. Nevertheless, the comments have been picked up in later cases and used to develop a more extensive effects doctrine, if not perhaps quite as extensive as the passage in Alcoa would suggest. Now, how do you there balance the competing interests of the two different states? It may well be that an agreement on prices is perfectly lawful in state A. It might even be encouraged by the government and yet be prohibited in state B. If state A's nationals in state A do something which state A's law permits, maybe even encourages, should they be liable to a criminal or quasi-criminal penalty in state B? Now, so far, there seems to be agreement that where the state where the action takes place requires someone to behave in a particular way, that requirement, foreign sovereign compulsion it's sometimes called, provides an absolute defense if the person concerned is prosecuted elsewhere. But the more difficult case is where it's not compelled to behave in that way. It's merely permitted to do so, perhaps encouraged. And that remains an area of great tension, for example, between the United States view and that of the European Union. Now, before I leave the subject of jurisdiction altogether, I want to turn from state jurisdiction for a moment, or turn from the application of it in criminal cases, to look at one related issue, and that is the use of the word jurisdiction in the human rights context. Most human rights treaties contain a provision at the outset which tells you who is covered by that convention, what is the scope of application of the treaty. For example, Article 1 of the European Convention on Human Rights provides, the high contracting parties shall secure to everyone within their jurisdiction the rights and freedoms defined in Section 1 of this convention. Everyone within their jurisdiction. 
and Article 2, Paragraph 1 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Each state party to the present covenant undertakes to respect and ensure to all persons within its territory and subject to its jurisdiction the rights recognised in the present covenant. So the concept of jurisdiction is plainly important in deciding the scope of a, a hu these major human rights treaties. The UN Human Rights Committee, which is charged with the interpretation of the covenant, has dealt with this in a number of cases. It is said, for example, that Article 2.1 should be given a broad interpretation and that when it says within its territory and subject to its jurisdiction, that should be interpreted as meaning within its territory or subject to its jurisdiction. So the committee has held that the covenant applies, for example, to a state's action in abducting someone from the territory of a neighbouring state. If the special forces of a country, for example, seize somebody on the territory of another state, hold them prisoner and then bring them back, the entire conduct, including the extraterritorial conduct, is committed against somebody within the jurisdiction of the detaining state. The European Court of Human Rights hasn't gone quite that far, but it has in a leading case called Bankovich, decided by the Grand Chamber of the, Euro the European Court of Human Rights in 2001, said quite a lot about what the concept of jurisdiction means. And its contribution there is quite helpful, not just as part of interpretation of the European Convention, but on a wider basis. The facts of that case concerned the conflict over Kosovo in 1999. During that conflict, an aircraft from the NATO states bombed target in Belgrade, the radio television Serbia studios, killing 16 people and injuring a number of others. The relatives of some of the dead and a number of the survivors brought a case under the European Convention against the 17 NATO states that were members of the European Convention, everyone in effect except the United States and Canada. And they argued that the bombing had been a violation of their relatives' right to life under Article 2 of the European Convention. The Grand Chamber unanimously rejected that argument. And it did so because it said the Convention would only apply if the people killed were at the time of their death within the jurisdiction of the state that dropped the bomb and perhaps of the other NATO states. It didn't need to resolve that question. And it said they weren't within the jurisdiction. And reaching that finding, the court said this, that jurisdiction is a primarily territorial concept. And it went on to say that exceptions to the territorial principle such as jurisdiction on a protective or passive personality basis, are, and I quote, as a general rule, defined and limited by the territorial rights of other relevant states. Now that's the balancing act approach that I mentioned earlier in connection with the effects doctrine. And the court went on to hold that the bombardment of Belgrade by NATO air forces did not bring the population in the territory of um, the former Yugoslavia, within the jurisdiction of the NATO states. The fact that the NATO countries concerned might have been internationally responsible for the actions that took place did not in itself serve to bring the people who were on the receiving end within the jurisdiction of that state. 
There are a number of other cases currently pending before the European Court of Human Rights which seek to test the limits of that doctrine. Now what we've seen is that the exercise of jurisdiction is in one sense a strictly territorial principle. Executive jurisdiction, the actual holding of a trial, the arrest of somebody, the detention of a, of a defendant, is something which may not be done on the territory of other states unless those other states have expressly consented to it being done. But at the same time, where a state is entitled to, where a state seeks to try somebody within its own territory for conduct that took place outside that territory, the limits on its jurisdiction are rather less clear-cut. Jurisdiction may be primarily territorial, but it isn't exclusively territorial, not when you look at it in this sense of adjudicative jurisdiction, as opposed to executive or enforcement jurisdiction. And international law is still seeking to work out the full extent of the limits which it places on the right of a state to try somebody for conduct which takes place outside its territory.